Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Tinoco. We'll get to the interview with Lexis Olivier Ray in a few seconds. But first, I wanted to say we want to hear from you. LA Podcast is growing, and we're looking to know more about what our listeners want more of, want less of, and just generally what your expectations of news and media are in Los Angeles. And that goes for LA Podcast. Write us a note at hello at thelapod.com. That's hello at thelapod.com. And with that, here's Scott, Alyssa, and... Lexis Olivier Ray, who is a freelance journalist who most often I see your work at LA Taco. You write for other places as well. And we're here tonight to speak about an incredible series that you have published at LA Taco, a three-part series that's rolled out over the first few weeks in June about something that's become quite ubiquitous on the landscape here in LA, but a lot of people don't really think about it. So welcome, Lex, to the show. Thanks for having me. So... I, I don't think a lot of people remember how the hand-washing sinks and the porta-potties originally got to homeless camps all over the city. Do you, Can you tell us about like when they first appeared and what was that process? Yeah, so right at the start of the pandemic, um, there was obviously a lot of demand for uh, sanitizer and hand-washing station units. So the city began rolling them out, I believe, in mid or late March. And um, it was a slow rollout. It took a while for um, hand-washing stations to appear in some neighborhoods where there were large um, populations of homeless people. Um, but eventually they hit the streets and um, the city rolled out about um, 200 hand-washing stations or 300 hand-washing stations and almost 200 portable toilets. And do you remember, I, I remember seeing like your Twitter feed at the very beginning of the pandemic, you were taking photos of these, you were testing them like right away. Do you remember when you started to realize that they weren't being maintained at the level that they should be? Yeah, pretty quickly. I mean, the way I started reporting on them was um, I essentially lost a bunch of work right at the start of the pandemic, like a lot of people and just found myself going on these like really long walks through MacArthur Park, through Echo Park, downtown. So sometimes I would literally see these hand-washing stations being rolled off trucks and like set up on a corner. And very quickly, I mean, you know, after a few days, just started to notice that some of them weren't being maintained every day. Um, some of them had soap and no water, water but no soap. A lot of them didn't have paper towels. And um, as the weeks progressed, um, you know, they became littered with trash and graffiti. It's interesting, too, because like I, I loved this as just kind of like gonzo journalism at the start of the pandemic, where it was just like literally you just being like, OK, I'm walking or I'm skating through a place. I'm just going to they put this out here. So it looks like they're doing something uh, within the city of Los Angeles. And I'm just going to try it. And sure enough, there's just nothing in it um, for our listeners, I think if you put yourself back in the mentality of being in spring 2020, it's it's so interesting how quickly things evolved. But that first, very first period of the pandemic where things were just starting to shut down, it was all about, as you mentioned in your in your uh in your pieces, it's all it was all about washing hands thoroughly. Um, there were the great memes where you could like pick the lyrics to any song and it would do like 30 seconds worth of song lyrics for you. 
that but like that was that was such a central focus and so the city of LA got a lot of blowback for uh not allowing for uh these hygiene the the hygiene stations to be well distributed throughout the homeless population and there was a big concern about covid spreading through through there um you bring up the judge carter case which is still ongoing where a bunch of downtown business owners have uh, sued the city for hope, they're hoping for uh, the ability to clear out unhoused people from Skid Row. Um, can you talk a little bit about the relevance of Judge Carter to uh, what Mayor Garcetti said that he was going to do with these sanitization stations throughout the city? Yeah, sure. Um, so early on in in late March and early April, as you mentioned, there was a lot of criticism from homeless advocates and unhoused residents about these stations. Um, I actually wrote a story for Curbed LA first about the hand washing stations. Yeah, it was my first story for them. And Aww. then like a month after. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Judge Carter, he was putting a lot of pressure on the city, particularly, as you mentioned, um, the, re- the city's response to the homeless crisis in Skid Row. Um, so he actually went out and tested some of these hand washing stations, assessed them, and found similar results that I did. And that pushed uh, Mayor Garcetti to say that hand washing stations would be assessed daily in uh, early April. And yeah, that was at one of the, the COVID shows that were at that time nightly. I was a regular viewer. I have to bring it up in every interview that we do. Um, but but people were actually using them. I think that's something that is really pointed out in your story, like how much people were actually relying on them. And then, then and the other thing to point out is like the disparity that you started to notice when, you know, you would cross from one council district to another or certain parts of the city. Talk about, you know, pe- people actually seeing that they had to like maybe travel somewhere to be able to, to use one of these um, hygiene stations? Yeah, I spoke to more than two dozen unhoused residents. And one thing that a lot of people brought up were they just didn't know where the hand washing stations were. You know, there's parts of the cities, uh, certain neighborhoods and, um, you know, parts of LA that just didn't have any hand washing stations at all. And the way that they decided where they went was based on input from council members and then also um, the sanitation department, they essentially track encampments um, and like the cleanliness of streets. So there are just certain areas where hand washing stations and then even more importantly, portable toilets didn't reach some residents. Um, a lot of residents told me that washing their hands was, a, was an issue, but a bigger issue was finding a place to go to the bathroom. Because everything was closed. I mean, I think we're, we're forgetting that again. It's so it's mm-hmm. so strange to revisit this back, you know, looking back at the story I wrote um, when the marathon, remember the marathon in, in 2020, and there were toilets all over the city for the marathon. And then they came the next day and picked them up. And then a few weeks later, they were dropping them all over the city again. Uh, for you know, it was just it just seemed it just seemed like you just look back on that time. It just seems it seemed like so wasteful. But I mean. 
when, there was nowhere for anybody there were, to use yeah, the Yeah, everything restroom. was closed. Every, like the Starbucks, for example, you know, it was closed. Every single thing was closed. Even if they were open, they weren't letting you use the bathroom for quite some time. So, I mean, Starbucks is such a good thing to call out to because in Los Angeles, we haven't had uh, public restrooms like ever. And we're more or less unique among large cities in that respect. Huge homeless population and basically no public restrooms. The Starbucks thing is so interesting because going back to pre-COVID, there was a really big incident where uh, Starbucks employees called the police on black customers. And after that, you know, they had the thing where they like closed every Starbucks in the world and did racial sensitivity training. And then they were like, we're going to just let everybody use the restroom here. And as totally bizarre as it sounds like the city of LA was just like oh well that takes pressure off of us to have public restroom we can just use Starbucks as the public restroom when all of those go away um what becomes of the people who are living on the street they have they have no option basically right like they they have nothing that they can do and when you started to ask i found this part really interesting when you started to ask the council district you you asked this thing of the mayor you made this promise you started to follow up and at first they were very enthusiastic about their participation, but then all of a sudden they started to be like, oh, we don't, we don't have anything to do with that program. Like we're not, this is not our responsibility. Talk about that like jurisdictional uh, volleyball that started to happen. Yeah, that was actually the sanitation department. I had been talking to them for uh, like off and on for over a year and um, they abruptly just decided that they weren't going to comment any further on the story and, um, I mean, it took me a while to find out that they no longer were assessing these handwashing stations. So I had obtained um, records um, from last April all the way through last August. And then and in September, they apparently ran out of resources to check these handwashing stations every day, which was news to me and I think news to a lot of the unhoused residents that I was speaking to. From what I'm, from what I was able to understand from from reading it, the uh, LA Department of Sanitation was actually going out and doing these assessments on a daily basis because the mayor had made this public commitment that they weren't necessarily living up to. Um, but there was a vendor USS that was um, actually responsible for putting all of the actual infrastructure in place and also for maintaining it, and they were going through the Department of General Services with the city. That was who was supposed to be making sure that the contract was being lived up to. Is that right? Yeah. Um, Department of General Services, they oversaw the contracts. Um, the Unified Homeless Response Center um, was responsible for um, deciding where they went. And LA San was responsible for assessing them. And what I found after reviewing four months of assessment records was that L.A. San never actually checked all of the handwashing stations citywide in one day. And on average, they checked roughly 50% of handwashing stations. I mean, I, I feel like this happened with a lot of things during the pandemic. Like everything was under emergency operations or something. You couldn't really find out who was responsible for things because it just took place within the mayor's office and then... You know, it would. It was just in this ambiguous, <laughs> you know, area. But you got these records, and you worked with Adrian Riskin, whose work we talk about very often on the show. Can you talk a little bit about how you were able to procure these documents? 
Sure. Yeah. After my story with Curbed LA came out, about a month after that, um, Adrian hit me up saying that he had obtained, I think at that time it was roughly like a month or so of these assessment records. And he's like, you want to do something with this? And like, of course. And then I asked him if he would try and get some more, you know? So he worked on that. I actually tried to obtain the same records from LA San and they basically told me that they didn't have them and that I should reach out to general services or the mayor's, mayor's oh office. God. <laughs> so Adrian just kind of continued to communicate with them because he obviously had um, a better relationship with them. And that's when I really focused on assessing, um, you know, the stations on the streets. And what does that tell you? I mean, you are this person who rides your skateboard around and walks around a lot. We live a couple blocks from each other. We know, I know the area that you cover. It's a lot. Um, that this very basic service has, is not being performed. It seems like as easy to schedule as say, trash pickup, you know, any single thing that the city would do. I mean, what is this, what is this saying about these contracts and how they're being fulfilled by the city? Yeah, it was really frustrating at, at first because the response I was getting from the city was, you know, we're doing this every day. They're being maintained. Um, everything's fine. But then obviously that what you saw on the streets, you know, it was just a completely different story. Um, and I think there's a lot of frustration amongst unhoused residents um, because of that lack of communication. Um, as I mentioned before, they didn't know where the hand-washing stations were. Um, people also spoke about how trash wasn't getting picked up during the pandemic. So there's a lot of frustration and just no answers and no way to really communicate with anybody. So I think part of what I was trying to do is um, is provide answers for people and, um, you know, figure things out for them that they weren't able to. I was, I, I was frankly really surprised by a bunch of the responses that you got uh, from city departments in your, in your attempt to figure out what was going on. It really, to me, like just made me wonder in the same way as Project Broomkey, which is something that we talked about extensively um, on, on our show, um, and, and also has, of course, been covered a, a lot elsewhere, but like sort of just who are these programs for? The things that uh, are, are supposed to be more compassionate programs for people who are most at risk from COVID and who are uh, living in very vulnerable uh, conditions on, on LA City streets. It doesn't seem like there's that much weight behind it other than trying to get like a positive PR sort of spin out of it. And I think that's most clear when you have the the spokesperson for the mayor repeatedly being like, oh, well, you know, we're, it is happening or, um, or the city council districts have the ability to choose where these things go. Um, but then at the very, at the very end, you had this incredible response, tr truly, literally incredible response from the department of general services. I, I felt, which was, um, they said that members of the public could make a complaint if they didn't think that a vendor for the city was doing their job and that that might trigger a, a, a an internal audit which would cause the the contract to close so the 
the blame shifting is incredible. Like if you are, and especially if you're a homeless person in in need of services, what I mean, I, I guess I should just ask you, like what when you talk to unhoused people who need restrooms, who need hand washing stations, do they feel like they have any ability to interact with let alone the Department of General Services, but just like the city of Los Angeles and what like is the Department of General Services. Exactly. It sounds fake. Who knows? Um and like but but what is their perception of their ability to get these issues rectified? Yeah, I think there's a lot of frustration. Um when I spoke to people, some people had solutions, you know. Um and I think there was an opportunity where they could have created something that was really beneficial for unhoused residents. But like you mentioned, they were really left out of that conversation. You know, you had all these city agencies, sanitation department, mayor's office, council members, but you didn't have the unhoused residents' voices in those conversations. Um, and I think even still there's an opportunity for for solutions. And, you know, if they opened up more to the people that are going to be using these services they might be more beneficial. I mean, what do you think will happen now? Everything's open. Are they going to take these services away? Are they going to maybe try harder now that we might have more resources? We have all this federal dollars coming in. What do you think will happen? My hope is that they figure something out. Uh, the contract, I was told that the contract is set to expire at the end of October of this year. So really a few months from now, but the mayor's office did mention that they feel that the city council might um, take this issue up again and possibly extend them. I hope that my reporting maybe puts a little bit of pressure on them. And I think I'm even willing to, you know, maybe connect people, um, unhoused people with council members or the people that are going to be making these decisions so that they can have some input in it. But I feel like there is an opportunity where they could make this a lot better. Are you gonna um are you gonna like go full circle and make the complaint to general services that they asked you to make? <laughs> <laughs> just see what happens. You're like, hey, I'm back. I, I I just feel like I, there's like a 99% chance that they do that audit and they're like, Yeah, everything's fine. It's not like based on but the, that's based the, on the excuse response. for everything. I mean, I think like, for example, we talked about when they fenced Echo Park Lake, right? And it, it's inaccessible or, you know, there's all these different complaints about like how you can't access the park and their excuses, we have gotten no complaints. Right. But like a vendor is not going to complain that he can't get into the park, right? And, a you know, a people who are just trying to go use it out on a regular day don't understand how to make a complaint that they can't walk in from their side of the neighborhood the same way. So it's like, how, where is the complaint made? Like, do you do it on 311? Like, what do you, where do you do it? Yeah, I don't even understand. I mean, that, that answer really threw me off. I mean, it was another surprise to me. Like, you know, after more than a year of reporting on it, I find out that could have just made a complaint and <laughs> they would have done the report for me. Um, and I'm not sure how much weight it has, you know, like you, like you guys mentioned, like what would actually, um, come out of that complaint. Um, they did mention that it could result in the vendor losing their contract, but then it's also like the contract's about to expire anyway. And like, who would you replace them with? 
I mean, United Site Services is the largest company, um, you know, portable toilet company in the country. So there's not a lot of other options. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. And you um, you have this texting application. Is that the right name for it? <laughs> I call it a texting subscription service. I guess. <laughs> and so this is something that you launched within the context of your work at LA Taco to not only communicate with the people who you're writing stories for, you know, the, the unhoused population in the city, uh, but also so people could send you tips. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Sure. Yeah. I, I received two grants from USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism, and one of them was an engagement um, grant. So this was part of a larger engagement project that I did um, over the course of six months or so. And this the texting service started as a way to communicate with the community that I was going to re- report on. And it's evolved into um, a service mainly to tell people about sweeps. Um, I send out sweep schedules uh, five days a week. And then it kind of evolved into also giving information about COVID and vaccines. And now it's evolving more into like tips about hand washing stations and um, answering questions and stuff like that. But it's been, been really great. People have told me that, you know, they appreciate getting the sanitation schedules which is another thing that I get from Adrian Riskin as well. He's um, the only person they give it to. They, they give it to, right? I think, he's yeah. just, I think he's just requesting it like yeah. on an ongoing basis. Yeah. yeah what he, is that telling us too about our city, right? I mean, why why not all make of this, this just, is so untransparent? Yeah. It's, it truly is. And he had to fight to get them, um, to send them every day. I mean, he would go down and I think look at them in person that's how it started. And they just got tired of seeing his face every morning. And they're like, we'll email them to you. Um, But he sends them by email and then I text them out. Um, But just that difference alone for some people is is a big deal, I guess. Um, You know, it's a little bit easier for some people to just pick up their phone and and get a text message with a a photo of of the schedule rather than open their email. Um, So yeah, hopefully that's something I can continue. Yeah, I love getting them. And and do you say just to DM you on Twitter to get the information or to get signed up? Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't post the link. It's I I try to only accept really uh, like unhoused people or advocates or some journalists. Um, Thank you for letting me in. <laughs> but yeah, just uh, shoot me a DM on Twitter or reach out. What's your handle just so people know? Shot on 35 millimeter. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's really great every day um, to get the information. Then you also push out your articles and also other relevant things, which has been really useful. But also just as a reminder every day for me to get it as someone who, you know, if you look in your neighborhood and you see something's going down or I've been more mindful of checking hand washing stations for soap and water and I... I'd send a little text to Lex and say, hey, you know, this one's dry. And I think if we can get this level of accountability, this little, you know, um, you know, band of, of people who are watching out for, for folks who might not have their phones charged that morning or whatever, I think that's, it's, a, it's such a great method and such a great use of journalism to do this. 
Thanks. Yeah, it really opened me up to like the possibilities of what journalism can be. Because oftentimes when I'm reporting on the unhoused community, I feel like I'm not doing enough. You know, it's like people are really struggling and just writing a story doesn't always, you know, doesn't always cut it. So, um, you know, actually finding solutions and, um, you know, even just simple things like answering questions for people, I think is it's really important. And how many subscribers do you have now? Do you have like a regular audience of? I think there's about like 70 people on it. That's great. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. You're answering people's questions about like, they want to know like what what's open or what's going on near them. Or, yeah, I mean, that's because where are you going to get that information if you don't readily know, right? Yeah. I feel like most media outlets, they write for housed people about unhoused people as opposed to writing for unhoused people. And I learned that through, um, you know, the last year reporting on this and particularly the engagement project. So I would get questions like, where are the handwashing stations? And I realized it's really important just to, you know, provide a map of where these handwashing stations are so people could actually access them. There's a lot of examples like that of, you know, people having questions and, um, concerns, um, also like, uh, solutions. Like, I feel like you don't see that enough. Like a lot of times unhoused people, um, they realize things aren't perfect or they could be better and they have ideas of how they could participate in that and, you know, suggestions as well. So the texting service was really about just finding ways to help people and, um, listen to people as opposed to telling housed people like what's going on with unhoused people. I think it's really interesting that this is a health, a public health story, right? And again, you know, we think of like the pandemic and again, I, I just want to put us back in that, the, the mindset that we were in even a year ago, like exactly a year ago, right? So we had not only uh, the pandemic, but also protests happening throughout the city at the same time, right? And this idea that the, the the communities that were not being served um, on the street were the same that um, you know the same reasons that people were out in the street protesting was you know this huge public health disparity that was actually killing a lot more people at, at this you know very moment in time and you've reported so much on um, those protests. At the, at the same time that you were out here, you know, checking these hand, you check the hand washing station in the morning, then be out at the protest in the afternoon. I just saw you, you know, going around the city. How, as a, as a reporter, how do you decide what stories are, are, are going to be what you're going to cover? And especially you going back to some, something like LA Taco and, and pitching the story to them and saying like, this is a, you know, a crucial thing that needs to be covered at this moment because it does address, it does address the same uh, disparity because we're talking about the number of, of homeless Angelinos that are on the street are 30% black when the population is only nine, 10% black. So talk a little bit about like how this is something that the city is failing at, you know, to address these same issues. Yeah. I got really frustrated and I think that's what really motivated me to keep continue reporting on handwashing stations you know, the city's response initially was just that there is no problem. We're maintaining them. Garcetti pushed back a couple of times um, saying that hand washing stations were being assessed daily by city staff. 
So that really motivated me to continue reporting on them and to show them like, look, this that's not what's going on, you know, on the sidewalks. And through this process, I really learned that I'm happiest when I'm reporting on the streets and finding stories on the streets. Um, so I think that also has a lot to do with it. Yeah, it's like a it's like a public space. Uh, it's it's a convergence of so many things that I think are ignored in the city, right? It's like the the public space issue, homelessness, um, city services. You know, it's kind of like this collapse on a mul- multiple level. Um, and again, we we don't really know the impact that this has really had. I mean, we we still don't know the full extent of. Um, for example, like when it got really hot last summer and there were people that were left outside uh, to to die basically because the city was not opening enough cooling centers and wasn't bringing people inside as part of Project Room P. I think it's, it's all connected. And you're really one of the few reporters in the city who is really out there talking to people and maintaining these relationships with, you know, the people who are relying on public services to to stay alive basically. Yeah, that's one thing I noticed in my reporting is it started off about hand washing stations, but then all these other issues and problems that people face came into it as well. So people talked about sweeps, people talked about the lack of trash pickup, they talked about um, harassment from the cops as well. So it was really hard to just like have a conversation only about hand washing stations. There's just so many other things that people have on their mind. When you when you're talking to people who are living unhoused in in LA, um, do you get the sense that just by virtue of the the sort of gap in media for them, or or just even more broadly, information being directed for them, that when somebody's actually coming out there and offering to listen to or talking to them about their daily experience? They feel like they need to just get it all out there and like, oh, this is this is a, a chance to actually be heard by someone. Or I mean, are are these just things that are that closely related that you can't really for an unhoused person, you can't really separate out, you know, the the hand washing station not working, the porta potty being unusable because it's clogged with toilet paper, the cops coming through on Thanksgiving Day and um, and harassing you and telling you to move along. Are, are they just that closely related for the experience of unhoused people? Yeah, I think I think it's both. People were definitely appreciative of me going out there and they really appreciated the fact that I was so interested in, in these hand-washing stations. So there, there was that. People were really appreciative. And then, yeah, I think it's hard to separate, you know, these different issues. It was interesting because... Sanitation departments involved in the hand washing stations, but they're also involved in the, they call them cleanings, people call them sweeps. And that's actually when they would check the hand washing stations, right. is when they were going out to the encampments, clean the sidewalks. And, you know, the hand washing stations were, were right there, the portable to- toilets were right there. So I think it was really interesting to see how LA Sands' role in things was, you know, really based on enforcement. And I'm thinking of one thing in particular you posted the other day. We were talking about it. Um, you and I were texting about it when you were filming a sweep and they called the cops on you. Yeah, it was um, the day after I published first the first story of the series, I believe. I was out covering a, a sweep um, 
just outside of my my apartment and a sanitation worker called the LAPD on me. And they told you what? You weren't allowed to... Yeah, they were saying that I was too close and that it was unsafe for me to be there and that I should stand outside of their their yellow tape. Police officers arrived, spoke to sanitation briefly and then spoke to me briefly and, and left. So I don't think it was really a problem. <laughs> this is interesting because um, we were talking about this before we started recording. I had a very similar experience back at the beginning of April where I was at the ex- exact same camp as you were, Lex. And I didn't have the cops called on me, but it was uh, it was a case where I was just out there attempting to talk to someone from Lhasa who was there trying to check in with some unhoused people who I'd met previously at that camp. And L.A. San was very aggressively uh, trying to move me out of out of this area where, granted, it's an underpass for the 101 freeway. So it's like once they tape off both directions, you really can't get around it. There's not like a detour you can take. Um, but it's it, I just feel like it's interesting because going back even to pre-pandemic time, we've heard a lot about how the city in trying to transition uh, police officers away from uh, doing frontline homeless outreach that a lot of the biggest pushback was coming from LA sanitation who were like refusing to go out to uh, to service places unless they were going to Without be cops, yeah. cops yeah. present. Yeah. Um, and this seems like it has remained a very contentious aspect of the job for sanitation workers. Um, and I just wonder like, even whether when you were reporting or uh, covering sweeps or even when you were talking to unhoused people, did you get any sense of of that relationship from the side of unhoused people? Like, do they have positive interactions with Cindy Sanitation? Do they have any uh, interactions with them to speak of? I don't, I don't really know that much. Yeah, I, I did speak to unhoused residents about sweeps during my reporting on hand washing stations, and people had some some real hor- horror stories um, dealing with sweeps and the police as well. You know, sometimes they go hand in hand, like you mentioned. The cops arrive with the sanitation crews, and I think sweeps are a little bit different when there is police around because um, they do have. The, the ability to, you know, tape off sections and, and um, you know, separate people from their belongings. One thing I remember is somebody telling me is that um, during sweeps, um, sometimes they have those mobile showers as well. And some unhoused residents told me that they didn't even want to use the showers because they were so worried about losing their stuff or, you know, something happening while they're away from their home. I have to ask to you, you know, before before we wrap, wrap up, um, you mentioned that you started getting such a better perspective on these types of issues when you started doing the kind of on the ground reporting, like deeply embedded in communities like this. And I personally feel like as somebody who follows your reporting, you know, like you frequently, it seems like, are just going through the city on your skateboard or or what have you, and you come across a fascinating story that I feel like would not be, just wouldn't be reported otherwise. Yeah, I'm thinking about the MacArthur Park day where you saw 
that woman. I'm thinking of Bam Margera. Oh my gosh, we're thinking of so many good (laughs) backstories. No, both of those are very good. But yeah, I mean, sorry. Oh no, no, totally. No, I just, um, I'm just. I, they both have involved like, you know, abandoned properties, people who are, you know, unhoused and the police. Like, it's like, all oh, right. I, I'm just so curious. Like, do you have anything? Is there anything that you could tip for our listeners that you're working on right now? Or do you, is there something like you're trying to uh, get to and cover with that kind of journalism that uh, that you hope to get to in the next couple months. What what are you working on coming up? Um, I am working on some long term projects. Um, can't can't really speak about them too much. Um, I'm working on a podcast now. Awesome. That should come out in the fall. And I'm really excited about. And then I'm I'm also a filmmaker and an artist, so I'm I'm also working on um, some film projects, um, which I'm really excited about because I haven't had a lot of time to do video work, particularly during the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. I really kind of walked away from from doing video projects um, over the last year, or so excited about that. As far as um, written stories and. Um, stuff that I'm finding on the street. I don't necessarily plan for that stuff. It's just happened to be out and run into something. I spend a lot of time walking around because um, I'm a photographer as well. And um, that's kind of my thing as a photographer, just walking around aimlessly. Um, so when I run into those stories, I, um, you know, I cover them, but it's not necessarily something I can really plan for. Yeah, and we should also note that you have a store where you sell beautiful prints. I happen to own a really famous one of a LAPD car burning in the middle of Fairfax. (laughs) (laughs) With the billboard behind it that says, dead to me. (laughs) What is the store? You can find it on my website, LexisOlivierRay.com. The shop is just shop.LexisOlivierRay.com. Yeah, I really appreciate the support from the prints. It all goes back into helping me create more work, buy film, uh, eat tacos. So really just appreciate the support. Fuel fuel for the fire, burning the police car. <laughs> <laughs> to be even more dead to me. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your important work. I'm so I'm just so happy to be able to have this conversation and um if people can reach out and sign up for your texting service, support you in any way, follow you on Twitter, follow you on Instagram. These are all great ways to keep up with um, what what you're doing and what streets you're skating down and, and what you <laughs> might stumble upon along the way. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys.